Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. It is a true blessing for me to be here with you this morning. I want to bring you greetings, not just from myself, but on behalf of the Texas Conference. I bring greetings to you. I want you to know that uh, we never forget that we exist to serve you. And no matter where you may be in the conference territory of Texas Conference, Sometimes people think of the conference as some distant entity, faceless, you know, they're just there. But really, I want you to know that we are always praying for our members, for our churches, our schools, our pastors, our teachers, all of us, those who are serving um, in their communities to do God's work. And if, you, if there's any way that we can serve you, we want to hear from you. So let me just say that from the beginning. We, we really do wish to serve you, and we're happy that uh, we've been gifted with this privilege of being called to service. Myself, as the Vice President for Ministerial and Pastoral Development, um, that's a long title, so I prefer to just say I'm the pastor's pastor. And I, I am privileged to be um, pastoring pastors in the Texas Conference. Uh, my responsibilities are more than that. I also um, provide resources and training for leaders like elders and others. Uh, but primarily, I see my most important responsibility as training, equipping, and ministering to pastors. So I want to thank Pastor De Lima and his wife. Um, I know that ministry, uh, I can pretty much say this with confidence, you did not enter the ministry for the money. (laughs) I always tease my wife. I said, honey, you married me for my money, but you've been sorely disappointed. No, that's not it. Um, Pastoring is a call, and I want to ask you to just pray for your pastor and his wife, because um, only the pastor knows the burdens that the pastor carries. Uh, His wife understands that to some degree as well. Um, So, I want to thank you, Pastor De Lima, and I want to thank each of you because it's not his job to do all the work, right? Sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, you know, we'll let the, we're not saying it this way, but in our minds, we're thinking the paid professionals are responsible to do the work. I mean, after all, that's what they're paid for, right? Let Pastor Krauss do it. Um, but it's very clear from Scripture that God doesn't call any of us to just be pew warmers, to sit in the pew and and soak in everything, but he calls us to also be the church, which is not the building. And I know you know that here. I wanna, uh, I'm aware that you are very much ministering to your community. So thank you for that. So uh, for those of you who are watching online, I want to also say a special greeting to you. It's great to see your faces, those that I can't see. I'm happy to worship with you this morning. And my prayer today is that God will be glorified and that we, his people, will be blessed. Can I invite you to bow your heads and just one more quick prayer. Father in heaven, we have not come simply because we're a social club. We do enjoy each other's presence. It is wonderful to enjoy the warmth of church family, and that's a gift from you. But primarily, Lord, this morning, we want to meet Jesus. We want your Holy Spirit to be present here, to be among us, to be in us, to touch our hearts, to open our minds, to enlighten our understanding. Father, speak to us this morning, for we have come to meet with you, and we have come to glorify you. We pray that your name would be glorified, that Jesus would be high and lifted up, 
and that we, your people, would be drawn ever closer to him and give a deeper commitment to him and to you, Lord, in service. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So our sermon titled this morning is The Gospel and the Great Commission. The Golden Rule and the Great Commission. And I'm, do I click? Is that how it, will that bring it up? I think we're still working on getting that slide up there. There it is. Okay, the Golden Rule and the Great Commission. I'm going to... I tend to wander, so um, I may, young man on the camera there, I'm sorry if I give you a workout today. Uh, everybody who works the camera says, hey, would you just stand still? I'm sorry, I can't. I, I move a lot. So, Do unto others. Um, that, that's, uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So you know the golden rule, right? Do unto others. I see what happened to unto you. Well, no before they do unto you. That's what I saw on a bumper sticker one time. That, that's not as I recall it from the Bible, but that's what somebody had on their bumper sticker. No, no, it's actually not that. It is as you would have them do unto you. Right, so that's the golden rule. Now that doesn't appear in scripture anywhere. We don't see, we don't read the golden rule, but that's what it's come to be known as, the golden rule. All right. Um, was it original with Jesus, this idea? Was this the first that it was ever introduced by any teacher? Well, sorry, I, I need that slide back up. Was it original with Jesus? Let's take a look at some things from history. In the 5th century BC, that's quite a while before Jesus, Confucius said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. About 500 years before Jesus. Uh, there was an Athenian in the 4th century BC that said, whatever angers you when you suffer at the hands of others, do not do to others. Tobit is not in your Bible, I don't think, unless you're carrying around a Catholic Bible. Uh, Tobit is one of the apocryphal books. It is in the Roman Catholic Bible. It's not in your Bible as a Protestant believer. Nonetheless, even though we as Protestants reject it and saying it's not part of the canon of Scripture, it's not inspired, we don't see that it uh, has the qualities of an inspired book of the Bible, but somebody did write it, and it is dated to around the second century BC, we believe, certainly before the time of Christ. And in Tobit 4.16, it says this, What thou thyself hatest, to no man do. Hmm, interesting. Hillel was the most influential rabbi just prior to the time of Jesus. And he said this, Whatever is displeasing to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. He was asked once by a Gentile, Could you sum it all up for me in the time that it takes uh, while I stand on one foot? In other words, don't make it too long. And that was his summary. Whatever is displeasing to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, he says. There it is, summed up. Interesting. So, I was flying a few months ago, and I, I had to change planes uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And whenever I have enough time, 
when I'm in an airport or if I'm in a hospital, I always like to visit the chapel and see who I might meet there. I'll just spend some quiet time as well, but I'm always looking for people. Who might I meet there and what kind of divine appointment might God have? Well, in this particular instance, I went to the chapel between flights and I met three Muslim people, a couple and another gentleman, and I greeted them, assalamu alaikum and kifalak, and, uh, and, and pretty soon I was out of Arabic and we had to speak English. But anyway, um, talked to them a little bit because I spent some time living and studying in their uh, native part of the world. And, and, and uh, while they were praying, I noticed something on the wall and I took a picture of it. They have the Golden Rule poster on the wall in the chapel of the Charlotte, North Carolina airport. And it has all these different faiths. Baha'i, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Sikhism, Christianity, Unitarianism, Native spirituality, Zoroastrianism, Jainism, Judaism, and Islam. All of them with their version of the Golden Rule on that poster. So all these Golden Rule type teachings in all these major world religions, so again, Here's what Jesus said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And I'm asking you, was Jesus merely reflecting what others had said before and some after, some of those religions are after Christ's time, uh, or did he offer something new and different from what others had already taught? Let's look at it again. All of those others were in the negative. We'll go through it quickly. But they're all in the negative. Don't do what you don't want others to do to you. All of them. And then Jesus comes along and says this. Therefore, whatever you want others, men, it includes you ladies, sorry. <laughs> it's not just men. To do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus took a familiar teaching... Now, to most of them, they had never heard of the Eastern, you know, they don't know who Confucius was, you know. Um, most of them had never been to Athens, probably never read what the Athenians said. Um, maybe some had, because the Greco-Roman influence was strong in the world of Jesus. Um, but they certainly had known what Hillel said. Jesus took a popular teaching and turned it a little bit with his special emphasis. In other words, in order to live by the golden rule, it's not enough to just say, all right, I'm gonna stay in my lane, I'm gonna be in my corner of the world, I won't do anything harmful to anybody else, and I'll be keeping God's law. Well, maybe according to Hillel, that would work. But according to Jesus, no, you are not. Because Jesus says, God did not put you on this planet just to not bother others or do no harm to others. God put you on this planet to be a blessing to others. He puts you here to be a positive force for good because he wants to pour his blessings through you to others. He wants you to be a channel of his grace. So Jesus takes the popular, don't do to others what you don't want done to you, turns it a bit and says, no, it's a very important difference. Do to others what you want done to you. It's even more positive in the original Greek, which we'll look at. 
So, the Christian difference is not just refraining from negative actions toward others, it is intentionally choosing positive actions toward others. Do you see how that requires something of you? You could go through your life the other way and say, okay, I'm, I'm cool, and your neighbors don't know anything about you, and, and, and for all they know, you're a, a recluse and an unfriendly, antisocial person. But you haven't done anything wrong to them, you haven't hurt them in any way, you haven't done evil to them but you have not shined the light of Jesus Christ into their life, and therefore you have not lived by the golden rule. Jesus calls us to be light in a dark world. He calls us to be salt of the earth. So Martin Luther, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that's the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher of all time. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, says... Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Matthew recorded it. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's built around the teaching blocks of Jesus, all those uh, teaching narratives. There's five major discourses, and then he fills in between them with the things that Jesus did. And Matthew was a Jewish man who's writing primarily to Jewish audience. And mountains are very important because God gave the law on Mount Sinai to Moses. Jesus goes to Mount of Beatitudes and expounds the law. Other things in Matthew's gospel happen on mountains too. You can read it and think about it yourself, but as a Jewish writer to Jewish audience, he's thinking about that. So there, Martin Luther is looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he says, with these words, he's talking about near the end, it's in Matthew 7, 12, near the end of his sermon, it says, with these words, he now closes his instructions given in these three chapters and ties it up in a little bundle. That's how Martin Luther saw the golden rule. That it was kind of the summary of the whole Sermon on the Mount, all tied up neatly. But if you were to translate it more literally from the Greek, those of you who speak another language, you know that something can always be lost in translation. Uh, how many of you here can hablar español? Okay, mi hermanos y hermanas en Cristo. How many of you speak Swahili? Any Swahili speakers here? No, I spent a little time in Kenya and I was hoping to greet someone in Swahili, but I guess we won't do that today. But you know if you speak another language that something can be lost. All right. Wer spricht Deutsch hier? Nobody speaks German either, I guess. You probably have languages that I don't speak. I'm sorry. Uh, French is... My wife's working on French, but that's not for me. All right. But here's how it would be li more literally translated from the Greek with the sentence structure that shows some emphasis and so forth. All things, therefore, as many and as much as you want others to do to you, you be doing to them, for indeed, this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus says that if you live this way, you are living out the law and the prophets. Now, you know the law and the prophets is the Bible in Jesus' day. It's the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament today. The law are the first five books, the Pentateuch, as we've come to know them. That was given by, well, given by God through Moses, right? That's the law. Everybody who came after Moses, the prophets, pointed back 
to the law that God gave through Moses and said, this is what the law says, and then they emphasized this is how you should live it. So they're expounding it. So the law and the prophets was the Bible. It was the inspired scripture before the New Testament. He says, this is a summary of it. Living by what we've come to know as the golden rule. So let's look a little bit at some things that Jesus said in addition to saying this is the law and the prophets, when he's referencing the golden rule as he just gave it. What else did he say about the law and the prophets in his teachings? Remember in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment? And his answer was this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. In other words, love God supremely, holding back nothing. That's the greatest commandment. But he can't stop there. Remember, Jesus wasn't asked, which are the two greatest commandments? He was asked, which is the greatest commandment? But Jesus can't just leave it at that and say, well, this is it. He goes on and says, but there's a second that's like unto it. Like, you, you can't leave these two apart from each other. They go together nicely. They require each other together. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. He said, the golden rule, doing unto others as he would have them do unto you, is the law and the prophets. He says, on these two hang the law and the prophets. So basically, these are anchor points on which all of God's instruction hang. On these anchor points. Well, how are they, how do you see these two laws being connected to the golden rule? Because one is the law and the prophets, the other has it hanging on the law and the prophets. Let's start with the second one because that's the easy one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's very clear. You can see the connection to the golden rule, doing to others as you would have them do unto you, loving your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you take care of yourself, you do what you feel is good for yourself, do that for your neighbor too. Got it, all right. But how about this one? The first law that he quoted as the greatest, the other one was the second like unto it, the greatest commandment is from Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's like there's no dark corners we don't let God in. With all your soul, with all your being, in everything you do, you're worshiping him because you love him. And with all your might, you give him all you've got every day. You're not giving a little bit of yourself. You're saying full-heartedly, Lord, I want to serve you completely. That's true love for God. What does that have to do with the golden rule? Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. How is that connected to the golden rule? I want to suggest to you it's because of that word others. Doing unto others. You know why? Because you are a selfish scoundrel. Oh, I'm sorry, I was talking to myself. <laughs> but it's true of all of us, aren't we? By nature, we are selfish. Those of you who are parents, you know that when you held that precious little bundle in your arms for the first time, you said, oh, this, now this is a gift from God. And yet, it didn't take very long as a new parent to figure out that little thing is a monster, a selfish monster. <laughs> she or he wants what they want when they want it. They don't know anything about pleasing mom or dad. It's amazing that we love them. <laughs> but we love them because our, our, they are ours. By the way, as a parent, when you understand that, that you love your children not because of anything they do for you, but because they are your children. That really helps you understand the love of God for you, doesn't it? That's the point at which you stop saying, 
okay, I don't need to earn God's love and favor. Anything I do for him is because I love him, not because I'm trying to make him love me. He already loves me more than I can imagine. All right, but you know that those selfish little monsters want, when they're tired, they, they're cranky because they, they need sleep. When they're dirty, they want to be changed. When they're hungry, they want to be fed. So one time I'm sitting with my kids on the couch at home. We, I was, we lived in Maryland for 14 years, and um, we homeschooled for seven years, the kids' experience. We're sitting on the couch, and in the morning I was having devotions with the kids, and I said, I don't remember what, what it was about. We, we used to read, often we would read nature-oriented devotional books because we love nature. We lived right across from some woods. We had trails, and we, kids grew up loving nature. So something prompted me to ask them this one morning, kids, why do you think it is that it takes humans so long to grow up? You know, reptiles, amphibians, fish, from day one, the eggs hatch and boom, they're gone. They're on their own. Um, birds, they got a few weeks in the nest and then mama pushes them out. Some of the mammals, they, they might hang around the larger ones, maybe up to two years, like bear cubs and so, such, but eventually they're on their own too. Elephants and so much, those communal animals, they, they stay with the herd, but they really are fending for themselves on their own at a certain age. So why is it that it takes 18 years to get those little monsters out of our house? Or sometimes 35 years, you know, that's a reality in today's world. It, and I'm not putting people down, that's just the reality. Sometimes it takes longer to get launched because of the way the world is today. As I say this, my heart is aching a little bit because uh, we, my wife and I just realized in the last little more than a week ago, we, my son made the decision. My, my daughter is graduating from CTA this year, and she'll be going to Southern in July for the smart start. My son, she's 17. My son is 20. Um, he's been working after graduation, and he just decided he's going to go to Southern with his sister. And we're going to become empty nesters overnight. Like one day they're with us, the next day they're both gone to Southern. <laughs> I said, honey, are we ready for that? You know, after all these years of, you know, but they're, they're going to be launched, right? Um, so I asked them that question, and they said, I don't know, Dad. And I said, well, think about what makes you different from one of the animals, the animal creatures that God created. We talked a little bit about what it comes down to is that you and I are free moral agents created with the ability to discern between good and evil, right and wrong. And we can choose. Animals live by instinct. But you and I don't have to live by instinct. Sometimes we do, don't we? We meet people like that. None of you, I'm sorry. But we know people, maybe you work with somebody who seems to live by instinct. Everything's a selfish, knee-jerk reaction. What is it that God wants us to learn? See, the only way we can love others as ourselves and do unto others as we would have them do unto us is if God works a miracle in this selfish heart. Because by nature, we are selfish individuals. But God can change us and do this beautiful, miraculous thing in our hearts so that we by God's amazing grace, become more like Jesus and think of others ahead of ourselves. It's a beautiful thing.
and it is a miracle of God. So that's why this is the greatest commandment, the one that says, love God supremely. Because if you don't do that, you're never going to get to the point where you can love others as yourself. So the Christian difference, again, not just refraining from negative actions toward others, but intentionally choosing positive actions toward others. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about Karen dressed up. By the way, I forgot to insert this if you're interested. When I was talking about reptiles, with my, uh, you know, how they, they hatch and they're on their own and so forth. My son and I, we love reptiles. Uh, we have just Wednesday night, I showed 11 of our snakes to the pathfinders at the Keene Church. And about a month and a half before that, I showed them to the adventurers. And uh, one time I was mentioning on the Hope Sabbath School program that came up somehow in the lesson that it was an appropriate illustration for me to mention that I, my pet, one of my pet snakes. And we got an email from some lady, and I, I don't remember where she was from, Africa or Asia, so one of those parts of the world. Uh, it was one of those two continents. And she wrote in this email and said, why is Pastor Krause talking about snakes? No, no, I'm sorry. They don't know me as Pastor Krause. Nathan. Why is Nathan talking about snakes on Hope Sab School? Doesn't he know that God cursed them? He should never be bringing that into the lesson. And so uh, Bodil handed me the email, print, you know, set forwarded it, and said, would you like to respond to this? I said, probably not. I, I don't think I'm going to change her mind, and I don't have the time to argue with her about it. So I just let it go. But, you know, people often say to me when I mention that we have pet snakes, don't you know God cursed the snake? And my response is, of course I know God cursed the snake. It's right there in the Bible. Don't you know that God cursed the woman too? <laughs> and I love my wife very much. So if I can love my wife, who is a cursed woman, I can also love some of God's amazing creatures that are also cursed. And the ground has been cursed for man's sake. And I love to work the soil and garden as well. We live in a cursed world. That creature that God made before Satan used it to deceive Eve was amazing because doesn't Satan always want to take the best and most beautiful and wonderful things that God has given us and pervert them and corrupt them? Adults, you know what I'm talking about. And so I think that uh, the serpent must have been an amazingly gorgeous creature. I still think they are, but imagine before uh, the curse. So anyway... I won't charge you any extra for that. That's a little freebie. <laughs> Back to the sermon here. Um, one day, Karen dressed up. I'm going to tell you a story, a memory that came to me sometime after becoming a Christian. I graduated from Emmaus High School in Pennsylvania in 1981. When the Moravians settled in that area, um, they named a lot of the, the, the Moravians from Germany came settled southeast Pennsylvania, and a lot of those areas have towns named after Bible places, like there's a New Jerusalem, there is Nazareth, Bethlehem, and so forth. Um, so Emmaus was my high school. It was uh, in the German language, or the Pennsylvania Dutch, which is a German dialect. It was spelled with one M, and it was called Emmaus. And I always used to tell people, Emmaus was named after a guy, a famous guy, you, you may have heard him, of him. He has big ears. Um, his first name was Mick. You remember Mick E. Mouse? No, that, that's a... Emmaus is named after the town in the Bible. 
I'm just checking to see if you're still with me. All right. So one day, Karen dressed up. And I don't know why God brought this memory to me after, you know, years had passed and I become a Christian at age 22. And sometime after that, I started thinking about this. It came back to me. It wasn't picture day, but for some reason, Karen was dressed up that day. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Karen. Karen was poor, I would say. And I don't even remember if that's really her name. I couldn't find her in my high school yearbook. I think she probably did not graduate with us uh, for some reason. When I say Karen was poor, what I mean by that is she and her family must have had less than my family. I grew up poor, but I didn't know it. (laughs) You know how when you're poor, I mean, you just think the ones that have less than you, those are the poor people when you're a little kid. And the ones that have more than you, well, they're rich. it was when I was in around early junior high school or so when our, our economic situation in our home improved significantly when dad got a good job and then later mom started working. And, um, but before that, it was rough. I mean, I was wearing pants that had been handed down from my big brother Howard to my next brother Steve to then me, and they would be passed down to my little brother Andy afterward. And... Uh, <laughs> It was not unusual for me to wear pants that had patches on top of patches. And we got one pair of shoes at the beginning of the year, the school year. And you took good care of it, because that's all you were going to get for the whole year. And if your feet grew that year, you just curled in your toes and made it, made it last. Um, but it seemed like Karen had less than we had. And she never wore very nice clothes. But this particular day, she dressed up. Now, when I say dressed up, it wasn't like a beautiful dress. It looked like a, uh, it was a blue dress that looked like it had probably come from a secondhand thrift store. It wasn't real nice, but for her, it was dressing up. Um, she had done her hair kind of nice. She had lipstick on, bright red lipstick, which I didn't think looked very good. Um, but she, you know, she had her makeup on. And, but what I especially remember was that she was wearing white high-heeled shoes. And it, the bell had rung, and I went to a high school in, in our school system. Junior high was 7 through 9. High school was 10 through 12. So it happened somewhere between 10th and 12th grade, probably 11th or 12th. And uh, there were about 500 students in each of those grade levels. So about 1,500 people in the high school. When the bell rang, Man, people were moving. You had five minutes to get to your next class, and it might be all the way on the other side of campus in another building or something. So you're hustling. And, and in the hallway, everybody's shuffling and moving. And a few steps ahead of me is Karen. <clears throat> and I remember those white high-heeled shoes. Ladies, I don't know how you do it. I, I, I don't, you know, high heels. She obviously wasn't accustomed to them. It was hard for her to walk. I'm pretty sure they were not invented by a lady, by the way. Because they're not practical and they're not comfortable, but a man invented them because they look nice. But Karen obviously was not accustomed to high-heeled shoes. And as she was walking ahead of me, I, I saw her ankles, you know, doing this. She was wobbling and unstable. And it was a polished tile floor. Yeah, you guessed it. The inevitable happened. She wiped out. And I was just a a few steps behind her, right? So naturally, I'm going to bend down and pick up 
some of the stuff she dropped, her books and papers. But before I go any further, you need to know who I am. That's me. That's my high school graduation picture. Um, so you see the red bandana by my arm? I had taken it off there. Um, but you can kind of see that I, you know, like people that always wear a hat, their hair shows it. So the bandana, I always wore that to keep the hair out of my eyes. Started a trend where all these guys started wearing red bandanas in high school. And uh, that particular day, I wasn't wearing the red bandana. Um, so I'm in the, in the hallway behind Karen. She wipes out. I'm just a, two steps or so behind her. So naturally, I bend down to pick up one of her books. And just as I'm about, I'm, I'm, I've almost got my hand on the book. And with my hair hanging down, I have no peripheral vision. I can't see anything. So I don't know who it was, but somebody's foot with a big farmer boot on it came and just kicked that book, and it went sailing down the hallway. And in that instant, I remembered, oh, yeah, Karen's not cool. And if I help her, well, I, that wouldn't be cool. I'm not going to look cool if I help her. So I just kind of stood up and kept walking. I couldn't bring myself to laugh at her, to kick any of her books or scatter any of her papers or call her names like others were doing. I couldn't do any of that, but I, I just kept going. So why, after 40 years or so, is this memory still burning in my mind and it still bothers me? Because I didn't do anything wrong that day. I didn't do anything right that day. So even though I didn't participate in the negative stuff done to Karen, I didn't do anything to help her either. I imagine that after everybody cleared the hallway, Karen must have composed herself and you know, picked up all of her papers and books and they were probably stomped and torn pages and footprints all over her papers. And she probably ducked into the closest girls' room, and in my high school, there were no doors on the bathrooms, between the hallway and the bathrooms, because the drug problem was so bad that they, they didn't want doors in there that kids could get away with more stuff. There were actually not even any doors in the stalls in the bathroom, the toilet stalls. Um, so Karen probably went into one of those girls' rooms and tried to find some privacy, and I'll bet she was crying, and cleaned up her makeup as much as she could, and composed herself and went back to class. And I imagine that day she went home from school and she may have cried some more. And I would imagine that she probably cried herself to sleep that night thinking, I don't have a friend in the world. But what if one person, just one, in that crowded hallway had stood up for Karen and said, hey, knock it off, guys. That's not cool. What if one person had said, I'm sorry this happened to you, Karen. Are you okay? Let me help you up. Here, can I help you gather your books? And I'm really sorry this happened. Are you okay? And I hope that your day goes better after this. If just one person had done that, it could have changed everything. She could have gone home that day realizing somebody was nice to me. Somebody in this world actually cares about me because I don't think she had a friend. I, don't, I never remember seeing her with any friend. But if one person had been friendly to her that day, it could have changed her world. But nobody was. And so 40 years later, I'm still plagued with the 
memory on my conscience that though I did nothing wrong, the wrong that I did was that I did nothing right when somebody needed to stand up and do something right. Do you see how important it is for us to live by the golden rule? It's easy to think, well, somebody else will do it, or I didn't, I mean, I'm not guilty, I didn't do anything wrong. No, actually, God put you on this planet to be a blessing to others, and if you miss your opportunity to do it, not because you weren't in the right place at the right time, but I mean, if it's right before you and you, you choose not to, you're not living by the golden rule, are you? And neither am I. Sometimes we've got to do more than just, you know, if we go back, it said in the Greek, if we were translating very literally, all things, therefore, as many and as much as you want others to do to you. That's not easy. That means instead of passing some change out of my console out the window to a guy who's standing at the intersection, and I'm driving all over Texas all the time now, and I see this all the time, instead of just handing him my loose change and saying, you know, God bless you, sometimes I might do more than that. I remember one time uh, a guy was standing on the corner, and before I was married, by the way, I'd bring them home, um, but you know, I'm not saying you have to do everything for everybody. You have to use your discernment, spiritual discernment. If you spend your whole paycheck on giving to others, then you can't care for yourself and your family, right? So I'm not saying that. But God will dis give you discernment. And believe me, as a pastor over many years, I have been conned by people. And I get a little callous sometimes. Well, you, pastor, you know, people, as soon as they have any need, they go down the list in the phone book and call every church. And my, my first question was always, do you have a church family? No. Okay, well, here, let me help you. And then they get angry with you when you don't give them money, right? I said, I, I'm sorry, ma'am. This is God's money given to the church. I don't make the final decision here, but I'm happy to help you if we... You know, if you, and then they swear at you and hang up, you know. So I've dealt with those kind. I remember once a guy in front of the Raley's in California, he was standing there asking for money. And I said, sir, can I take you inside and buy you some food? No, I want money. I'm sorry, sir. I'll happy buy you food, but not, no. why, don't, why won't you give me money? I said, well, I'd just prefer to buy you some food. I want money! And he got belligerent, and I said, Sir, you have cigarettes in your shirt pocket and alcohol in your breath, and I just don't want to contribute to those things. And I wasn't judging him. I, I used to smoke two packs a day, and by my senior year of high school, I usually started my morning with a couple shots of whiskey and a couple lines of cocaine. I know what that does to a person, and I just I don't want to contribute to that, but please, come inside and I'll buy you some food. I can do what I want with my money, he said. He's stomping his feet. And I said, yes, sir, you can. And I can do what I want with my money, and so I'm choosing not to spend it on, to give it to you to spend on those things. But I'll buy you food if you like. Well, that's how it ended. You know, he didn't want that. Um, but one time this guy on the corner was just homeless and asking for money. And I said, sir, what do you need? He goes, I'm hungry. And I wasn't in a rush to get to another appointment. I was heading back home. I said, well, I'll tell you what, hop in. I'll, I'll buy you some food. Oh, thanks a lot, man. I said, what would you like? And I'm thinking, you know, I'll take him to Taco Bell or McDonald's or something. And he said, I could sure go for a steak dinner. <laughs> I said, all right. And I 
didn't eat at these places, but I knew there were a few steakhouses in town, so I took him to one, and uh, he ordered his steak, and I tried to enjoy my salad while he ate that piece of dead animal flesh on his plate. <laughs> I'm a vegan now. I grew up eating deer, groundhogs, squirrels, rabbits, crayfish from the creek, whatever we caught or trapped, uh, we ate, you know? And, and it was really interesting when you're eating rabbit or squirrel or something, and then you, oh, you get a piece of lead because somebody didn't clean it out well enough with the shot. But now I'm, you know, for pretty much right after I became an Adventist, I became a vegan. I had been a vegetarian as a Buddhist prior to being an Adventist when I was teaching martial arts and into yoga. I had been into Buddhism and Hinduism. And I realized that if I care for my body, my mind will be clearer. And if my mind is clearer, I can have a deeper spiritual experience. That would, that's what I was looking for, a spiritual experience. It was before I was a Christian. I was already hunting for that. So I, you know, I'd become a vegan back in like 1987. And, you know, it, it was not something I was going to eat, but I was so happy that I could ha help that guy enjoy a steak dinner that day. I don't know when was the last time he'd had some experience like that. And it didn't break me. It was more than I had originally intended on spending. But if I were in his shoes and somebody did that to me, I think I would feel blessed and I would say, thank you, God, for what happened today. As many and as much as you want others to do to you, you be doing also to them. Like, see how it's ongoing? In the Greek, it's there. You be doing that. Or this, indeed, this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so we're going to be doing positive stuff to bless others. You've heard the old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And we show love in action by living the golden rule. I want to tell you, friends, when I found the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I knew that I had arrived. I was searching in all other kind of places. And I found this message and I said, wow, this is God's message given to a remnant people for the last days of Earth's history before Jesus comes to wrap it all up. I, want, I am so glad that I'm part of this worldwide movement of God doing something. But he needs us to do something. You know, if we get up in the morning and the angels are like, what are we going to do today? Because, you know, the angels are ready to work with you. They're, they always are, really. And if you don't get off the couch or, if, you know, if you just go to work and miss the opportunities to witness or whatever, the angels are like, they're ready. They're chomping at the bit, ready to get in and do something. And we miss the opportunity so often. God wants us to be doers of good. So how does that relate to the Great Commission? I'm sorry, I'm going long, and if you get tired of listening before I get tired of speaking, I understand if you have to get up and leave. But I just want to wrap it up with this tie-in to the Great Commission. What does the Golden Rule have to do with the Great Commission? Here's an interesting stat I just found this week. Um, many of you are familiar, maybe you're familiar with Barna, George Barna and the research. Um, they ask churchgoers this question, have you heard of the Great Commission? Now, that's not something in the Bible, just like Golden Rule isn't in the Bible, but it's something that we use, the title, great, the term Great Commission, to refer to what Jesus said we should be doing at the end, the commission he gave. 
So of church-going people in the United States, have you heard of the Great Commission? 51% said no. 25% yes, but I can't recall the exact meaning. 17% said yes, and it means they understood, and they knew what the Great Commission was. 6% uh, said, I'm not so sure. So, in case you're not familiar with the Great Commission, let's take a look at it. Before we get there, in Matthew 10, you read this. I want you to notice, what's the change between verses 1 and 2 here? Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. What just happened? In verse 1, they're disciples. In verse 2, they're apostles. What made the difference? He gave them authority and he sent them out. A disciple literally means a learner. An apostle is somebody who is sent out. Are we disciples or are we apostles? We should be both. We need to be discipled, but if we only stay in that mode and never go out, we're never going to be apostles. That's exousia is the Greek word there. So Jesus had a vision for the church. He's walking along with his, his guys on the road, and he says, hey, guys, uh, what, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying about me? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, you know, you're... Some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, come from, back from the dead, or a prophet. And he asks him, okay, but who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, by the way, Nathaniel had said that long before, but this is like it really, now he understands it, he speaks it with firmness. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Well, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You're right, Peter. But my Father in heaven revealed it. So now Peter, you know, the disciples are all jockeying for position. Who's going to be first in Jesus' kingdom when he sets it up? And Peter's feeling pretty good. Like, hey guys, did you just hear that? I had a revelation from God in heaven. Jesus just said so. And Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. It wasn't long after that when Jesus is telling Peter, get behind me, Satan, to Peter's face. Because Peter, Jesus says, yes, you're right. I am the Messiah. But then he goes on to explain, but it's not who you think. The Messiah that you have in mind is coming later. First, the, the Messiah must suffer and die. And then Peter pulls him aside and says, no, 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 Lord, don't talk like that. That can never be. No, you're going to restore Israel. You're going to give the kingdom back to us. You're going to put Rome down. And Jesus says, that is Satan's will for me, but not my father's. Get behind me, Satan. All right. So... What, but when he said this, you are the son of God, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And that's how we know Peter was the first pope, right? No, well, that's what some folks believe. But no, he was talking about himself. This, we know from the Greek, again, there's masculine, feminine, and neuter ten, uh, genders. And so we know he was not referring to Peter, but to that confession that he... Jesus is the Christ. That's the rock-solid foundation of the church. Jesus is the Messiah. We start with that. But then he says something interesting. He says, and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. Let me ask you something. What are gates for? Do you have a fence around your yard? Do you have a gate? Which side is the, the lock on in the gate? The inside or the outside? The latch. It's on the inside, right? Cities had walls around them to protect them. 
gates were locked from the inside, and that was to keep out people that were unwanted, invading armies or criminals or whatever. So now, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We sometimes get the image that the church is this safe place that we hide in to protect us from the big, bad, evil world outside. And in a, in a sense, it is that. But do you see what Jesus is referring to here? He's actually saying, Satan better look out because his church is going to be on the move and bust down the gates to claim the souls that Satan has kept captive. That's what it's about. When he says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, he says the church should be on the move, busting down those gates, breaking in like a, an invading army, entering a city. You and I go and expand the territory for the kingdom of God. We break into unentered areas. We break into people's life that are they're, they're living in darkness. And you break through and the light of heaven shines through because you're praying and witnessing and working for that soul. That's the vision that Jesus had for the church. The Great Commission... Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting so... I'm looking on my mic to click to the next slide. <laughs> Let me talk to you with this. All right, let's try it this way. There we go. All right, so back to the question, what does the Golden Rule have to do with the Great Commission? When we live by the Golden Rule, it will be so much easier to fulfill the Great Commission. When people see Jesus in you, they're drawn to what it is about you. And they want to know. They want to know who is it. They're drawn, aren't you drawn to people who are nice and kind? I, I had a friend, he said, whenever I meet people and they, they ask who I, I tell them I'm Adventist, and they say, oh. And he says, if they ever say, we know some Adventists, he always tentatively asks them, oh, what are they like? Or tell me about them. And then he braces himself thinking, you know, oh, they're going to say they don't eat this, they don't do that, they don't drink this, you know, like all the don'ts, and this is, that's all they know about them. He said, one time I asked somebody on a plane, and they said, oh, they were just the happiest and nicest people we'd ever met in our lives. And he thought, yes, that's what people should know about Adventists. We should be radiating joy and love, and just people should love to be around you. My wife grew up in Boston. And she's of Guatemalan descent, and she went to an inner-city Spanish church. She was about five or six when somebody handed her father El Gran Conflicto, the Great Controversy. He read it because he loved history. The Sabbath after he finished that book, he was in an Adventist church. And my wife only remembers, I miss my big, beautiful church. You know, the stained glass windows and the statues. <laughs> but she soon learned that church isn't about that stuff. Church is about the people. And she grew up loving her church family. Well, one day, on a Sabbath afternoon, her church family decided, we're going to take a field trip out into the country to South Lancaster, Massachusetts. If that sounds familiar, it's because where Atlantic Union College was, right? So now, they're out there in the country, and for the very first time in her life, this little girl from church sees a real, live cow. And she's so excited. I mean, she'd seen pictures, and she'd seen a bunch of it. The inner city girl never saw a real life, so she's out there and she sees this cow and she's excited and she picks some grass and she wants to try to feed it and call it over to the fence, you know. And, and when it gets closer, she looks at it and she looks to her mother and she says, Mommy, esta vaca es adventista. <laughs> Mommy, this cow is an Adventist. And her mother says, Mija, what can you say? What, why do you say that? 
Porque, mami, mira, mira la vaca, mira la cara, qué triste. Mami, look at his face, how sad it is. <laughs> it's funny, but it's not funny. If our kids are growing up in church and thinking that being an Adventist means you're a sad person, is it any wonder that as soon as they can, they check out and they say, I, I, I don't want to sign up for this. That's not for me. But if they grow up, instead of just with strict rules and do's and don'ts, but grow up knowing that our lives are full of joy because God loves us. Jesus died for us. He's coming back again. He's got an amazing future planned for us. He's in control of everything. We got nothing to fear. And isn't it awesome to know that you have an eternity to enjoy with God who loves you more than you can imagine? I mean, if that's our message, our kids should be excited about that. And so will everybody else, right? If we live by the golden rule, it'll help that happen. Listen, our theology's right. I've tried all that other stuff, including New Age cult for three years. And I know there's a lot of stuff out there, but when you carefully search for truth, you will find that our doctrines are solid and the Bible is trustworthy. But if that's all we've got, which we often do in our evangelism, we convert people by showing them how right we are. And you know what kind of people that attracts? People who are interested in being right. We get the head converts. We've got to attract people and let them know God wants your heart. He doesn't just want you to have your right theology. He wants you to live by the golden rule. And then the world will see Jesus. You know, in Christ's Object Lessons, page 469, I believe. No, 69. Ellen White says this. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people. Then he will come and claim them as his own. I used to think that meant that I perfectly have to show the character of Christ in my life, and you do too. But I think what she was saying, what God was saying through her, is that when the world can look at the church, his people, and see the character of Christ in us collectively, because none of us is perfect. But when they look at the church and they see the character of Christ in this community, they're going to know the difference. And then it'll be time for him to come and claim. They're going to either cho choose to be a part of that or not. And we know in the end there's only sheep and goats. The world is polarized. Let's be the most attractive sheep we can so that others can choose to love Jesus and prepare for his coming. Amen. Father in heaven, Forgive us for so often we've been about being right rather than doing right. We pray that you will help us to live by the golden rule and understand that you have given us a great commission. You send us out with the same authority you gave the disciples. That when we go as your ambassadors, we go with all the authority of the, the universe because there's no greater power. And you said, all authority has been given unto me. And then you made this promise. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. Oh, Lord. That promise that you're with us is given in the context of mission. And we find that when we're out doing your will and your work, we're never closer to you than in those times. You come right alongside of us with your Holy Spirit and your heavenly angels. 
and we experience the joy of shining for you. Bless us to this end, we pray. Let us live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.